This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. And welcome to a special bonus edition of the Talking Dirty podcast to answer all your lovely questions you've sent in over at East Rustinol Vicarage. May I say, I'm not sure if I can get away with the C word, but looking a little bit Christmassy in his uh, sleeveless sweater of grey and white. It looks positively snowy. Uh, we have Alan Edward Herbert Grey, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. You know, they're coming back. They used to be called tank tops <laughs> and now they're known as a vest. Sleeveless jumpers known as a vest. Anyway, I'm not really Christmassy at all. It's too early. Thank you for the comment, though. And over in Cambridgeshire, in warm shades of, well, kind of golden butter yellow, <laughs> with, a, with a little touch of green and a flash of red, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Fredrickson, looking absolutely wonderful. I spoke to her this morning before she had a shower, so she's <laughs> fresh as a daisy. <laughs> I am. If I look, if you're watching the video version and I seem to be in a strange position, it's because I've got my dog on my lap and I can't move. She's very comfortable. And um, so I'm sort of having to position myself quite far back from the screen. So apologies. And I'm uh, sitting here, and although you can't see him, cheer my Bengal cat sitting on the table next to me, giving himself a wash. I'm going to leave him because if I, he's very vocal. If I speak to him too much, he will keep speaking back to me and it will annoy you all. It's the Postbag and Pets podcast. Yes. <laughs> now, as ever, you can send questions in to us on Talking Dirty. In the early days, over a year ago, when we first started, we used to try and squeeze them into the podcast itself. But um, time, very quickly as time went on, we realised that we just didn't have time <laughs> alongside... No, well, of the show and tell and the flow-mo and all of that. We didn't have time, but we are always happy to answer your questions when we can squeeze a post-bag edition in. So comment on Instagram, message us on Instagram, hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk if you want to email. You can tweet us, all the usual methods of communication, and we will hopefully answer your questions in an edition like this. Now, first of all, we've got some leggy pellies to bring to the podcast. Uh, Cheryl, listening and watching in Australia, has a very leggy pelly with bare stems and leaves on top. Is she able to cut it back and will it reshoot? And when is the best time to do it, Alan? Well, at the end of the winter really is the best time to do that. You really want to cut plants back when the sap is rising so that you can be sure of getting the new growth. Now, I don't know how terribly leggy her pelly is, but if it's terribly, terribly leggy, I think I would cut it back judiciously. I mean, not too hard, because if you cut way, way back into the old wood, there's every danger that it may not shoot again. So I would cut it back by half and see what happens. But there's always a but. Use the top of the, the young shoots as cuttings. Cut the lower leaf node, take the lower leaves off, leave one big leaf and an emerging leaf. Um, and if you've got those little flanges around the, the leaf nodes, pull those off as well. Put them around the edge of a pot um, uh, in dipping in rooting hormone, good gritty compost around the edge of a pot, give them water once and leave them in a warm, bright place. Now, when I take pelly cuttings, I take them I don't use any artificial heat. They're in a greenhouse, normally without heat. So they just have the heat of the sun. In the wintertime, if you're doing it, you would need a little heat because they don't like the frost. 
Um, and generally I get 95% of my cuttings will root. So I would do that. And then you can start off with a nice new plant. But the one thing I would add to this proviso of all these lovely things is that I do love a leggy pelly because pelagoniums naturally come from South Africa. And you see them growing, especially on the coastline of South Africa, as really quite gnarled, bushy, shrubby type things. And they have these wonderful bursts of colour with the flowers at the end, sometimes looking rather like an azalea, um, minus lots of leaves. And I think that those gnarled old stems give a great character to the plant. And I do say, um, not likely, but I rather, I rather like that so that for the plant to get character. But Cheryl, if you're careful, you'll have a You'll, you'll keep your old plant and you'll have a young one to keep you going when the old plant gets too big. I am um, very luckily this summer got given some pelagoniums by Dean, Dean R. Croucher, uh, who's brilliant on Instagram and has uh, let us use lots of lovely photos on this podcast. And um, I'm obviously terrified about losing them. So they've all gone onto the bedroom windowsill before any cold <laughs> weather can get them, which is rather nice because then when I open the curtains of the morning, I've got all these lovely scented pelagoniums to greet me. And one of them is yeah. a flower. So it's, uh, it's a real bonus. Thank you, Dean. <laughs> uh, next question comes from Foggy, another real regular um, listening and watching the Talking Dirty podcast. Thank you for all your support and picture use as well. Now, Foggy would like some wallflower advice. She's only grown in the last two winters and springs. The first, she bought bare root in a bundle for about two pounds from Berry St. Edmunds Market. Uh, they were healthy plants that did very well and smelled amazing, but the colours weren't exactly her first choice. So last year, she bought some very pretty smoky pastel wallflowers from a seller who'll go unnamed, but I'm sure everyone can guess. Uh, they came as small plants. The colours were beautiful, but they didn't do very well. They had hardly any scent and then they all got mildew. So she would like to know if she's going for great colours, but she also wants them to be healthy and scented. What would you suggest she plans to grow them in and amongst tulips? Well, I mean, growing wallflowers in separate colours is becoming increasingly difficult because, um, you know, people don't grow wallflowers in separate colours anymore. It's, too, it's People can't be bothered. So, you know, you go and you buy a bunch of um, bare root wallflowers, albeit for a very cheap two pounds. Um, they will be mixed colours and, you know, they boy, are they mixed. Um, <laughs> and I think the great thing is you if you want to grow separate colours, you've really got to grow your own. Now, um, Chilton seeds sell wonderful um, packets of seed of mixed colours. I suspect that there'll be too many in the packet for you to, to want to grow them all. Um, but what you did, the traditional way of growing wallflowers is just as wallflowers um, are ending their flowering period, late April is when you sow the seed for the following year. Um, so you sow your seed in April in drills in the open ground, uh, make sure they keep them watered. And then when the, the seedlings germinate, you wait until they get to about three or four inches high. Then you dig them up, preferably do this on a wet day. If you do, the, do it on a wet day when there's a dull sky, they won't notice the move quite so much. But you dig them up and you line them out about nine inches apart in the vegetable garden or somewhere where you where you can grow them on out of the way. Then when they got, get to about six or seven inches high, you pinch the tips out and that makes the whole plant bush out. So you get lots and lots of side shoots, which gives you more, much, much more blossom. They bloom a little later, but that's you know insignificantly later. Um, and then you can dig them up with a lovely ball of soil attached to them and transplant them to their flowering positions. Um, in October, September or October is absolutely ideal for this. But I would just say one of the proviso, don't plant your tulips until November, because the later you plant them, the less prob problem you'll have with tulip fire. Um, but, and, and that's it really, I think. 
The only other thing I think you can possibly do is go online and look at some of the um, people that actually grow wallflowers as plug plants, and you can grow those um, as um, in grow those in separate colours. I've done that this year, and I, I can't remember where they came from now, but I, I got I worked out how to do it. It, it was like you know, buy three and you get one free, little <laughs> trays of 10. Um, so I worked it out so that I got the maximum amount of wallflowers from my my, my dot, my cash. Um, and we've just, we potted them on, they're, they're still terribly small. I moved them into the greenhouse the other day because they're in pots. I want them to get as much growth as they can before the end of October, beginning of November, then I'll put them outside and transplant them to their flowering positions. But that's the, that's the two ways of really doing it. But if you're gonna grow them from seed yourself, get your order in early because I'm afraid that everything else today, seed is selling fast. Oh, yes. I always mean to grow wallflowers from seed. I haven't massively got the space for it, which is probably why I haven't done it. But it's on the wish list for a future year. It's very useful for people that have got an allotment, you see. If they've got an allotment, they can afford to give a little of the land to growing cut flowers as well as, as wallflowers. And I mean, you know, to have your own wallflowers is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. That's the dream. Um, now, Diane got in touch with a fig question. We have got a video on our channel. If you only ever listen to or watch our podcast, we have from our previous exploits on the Get Gardening YouTube channel, loads of, of video sort of plant profiles and tutorials. I think there's probably pelagonium cuttings on there. So I'll have to link uh, to that if you'd like a kind of visual reference. And obviously lots of other people have made tutorials as well. But we have uh, a very popular fig video on our channel that Ian, our Get Gardening co-conspirator did for us. So if if you are looking for some fig advice, head there. But Diane got in touch off the back of that video uh, to ask about her fig plant, which has been in a pot for at least four years, but it's never fruited and it's getting very lanky. She wonders, should she repot re it and should she cut it back, Alan? Well, I, if you've got a fig that's growing in a really big pot and I have in the middle of our vegetable garden, um, I don't repot it at all. I mean, it gets to the stage where you think it's almost going to break the pot. But what we do with it is we do prune it and we prune it in very early spring. So we're talking about late winter, really, February, uh, middle of February, I should think. We cut it back because the thing about figs is you want to prune them when their sap is down before they start growing. Because once they start growing, the sap starts rising and the cuts can bleed. They won't kill your plant. I mean, if, if that happens, I wouldn't worry too much about it, but it might set it back a little bit. So cut it middle, middle of winter, cut it back and cut it back to the shape and size that you want. Then what you do in early summer, we'll say May, sometime in May, the new shoots that he's made, when they're about six inches long, you pinch the tips out and then just leave it. Um, it will produce some figs, maybe not in the first year after pruning, but what you'll get is you'll get some small figs. Maybe they won't ripen the first year. If they don't ripen, pull them off. But you've got to leave behind the tiny little pea-sized pea embryonic fruits because they're the fruits that hopefully will stay on the tree and will ripen the following year. So it's really quite simple. You've just got to think how, how, how a fig grows. Naturally, where they grow in the Middle East, they grow in very, very poor soil and so they have a very questing rootstock that goes down to find uh, water and minerals and things that they need and because the climate is so warm you get two two crops of figs a year which is why sometimes at the end of the summer we're left out with figs on ours that don't ripen so they won't ripen then the only thing they'll do is they'll stay there and they'll go a bit moldy perhaps so you need to take those off because they're taking energy from, from not only your fig tree, but they can, can cause disease. And you just leave those little tiny pea-shaped 
baby ones behind to ripen for the following year. One thing else I forgot to say is that every year we top dress the top of the pot. So I get a, a, one of those little claw cultivator things and I go all, all over the top, raking right into the root ball. Don't worry about that. And then I replace that with a layer of very well rotted manure um, and maybe a handful of bloodfish and bone meal as well. So that every time I water the fig, some of the goodness from that mulch goes down into the pot. And we also feed from midsummer onwards as well, or the liquid feed about once a fortnight. And how often do you water your fig in a pot? Um, probably not as often as you would think. I mean, maybe once a week, um, maybe in, in, in dull wet weather, maybe longer than that. Um, you don't have figs are tough old things. They were they were, you know, I've just said they grow in the Middle East. You can't get a tougher environment than that for a, for a plant to grow in. Um, so they're tough old things. So don't worry about them too much. Um, if you give them too rich a food and all the rest of it, I think once you've got a plant that's established in a pot and it, it rather sounds as if Diane's fig is well established in its pot and it's getting just a growing. If it's still growing a little bit leggy, I mean, it needs to be taken in hand. It needs pruning. They all need pruning. Um, ours has got to the stage now where it's bowing right out over the pathway. So it's going to have a se severe haircut this winter. Mark my words. <laughs> I mean, I'm no fig expert. I only have the one little plant. And um, the way I feel about figs is having wanted one for ages, I kind of wish I just bought brown turkey because everywhere I go and I see that one, it looks so good. And mine, I can't remember what it's called um, at all, but just never seems to do very well. It seems to be so much harder work than everyone else's figs. I have, I see them that get completely neglected and seem to be absolutely fine. And I really try and sort of look after mine and monitor it. And, uh, and it, it, it never does very, it has got fruit on it, but um, I don't know, it never looks happy. No, well, uh, there are various varieties of figs. Brown turkey is the tried and tested one because um, it grows very well in the English climate. But, you know, figs, I, I, I suppose it's probably brown turkey that we had when I was a child. We had it planted in a courtyard and it didn't ever get pruned, but it was vast. And as a child, I could climb into it. And I, if, I, if I say to you that it was 30 feet wide and 15 feet deep, um, and it was growing in, in, in a gravel courtyard with no soil around the top of it or anything. And that's, it fruited prolifically every year and we didn't ever prune it. Wow. Um, I think it probably got to its stage where it wouldn't get any bigger than that. I, um, uh, I love the idea of a small Alan Gray clambering through a fig tree. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's another very good fig. It's a variety called White Marseille. Um, and there are many others. I mean, a wonderful nursery in, in Norfolk years ago. They had the National Collection of Figs. Uh, Reed's nurseries. Um, I was talking to uh, the chap there one day and he was explaining to me how he'd planted on the, in the open on the top of a hill where the soil was poor and he did it within the intention of those figs growing and fruiting in the open because, you know, they did really need wall shelter years ago. Perhaps today they're not so bad. Ours in a pot, we get probably 20, 25 figs off every year. I Probably they're more resilient now than they ever were. Um, I mean, I remember we used to have one at home in a huge greenhouse that we had um, on, a, on a wall. And we used to get two crops of fruit from that every year. That was an exotic variety, but I can't remember which one. Oh, amazing. We're going to return to flowery things in a moment. We've got a zinnia question coming up. But before that, an anonymous question that came in from someone who lives in Canada and has an Eliagnus angustifolia or a Russian olive. We hope that's what you meant. You said Russian olive. We're going to take that as an Eliagnus um, that they say is about 10 feet tall. Now, it appears to have rust on its leaves. Do you know why it might be? 
Well, um, rust is quite simply a fungal borne disease. Um, you can't prevent it. You can do your utmost to, to, to stop it happening. And that is really just good hygiene because you've got the, you know, the rust uh, is on the leaves. The leaves will fall to the ground. The spores will be on the leaves. And if you leave them there um, over the winter, however much snow you might have throughout the winter in Canada, those spores, when the weather warms again, it's, they're going to float upwards and they're going to reinfect the, the Eleagnus, the Russian olive again. Um, so I think hygiene is the key. If you can get, get up as many of the leaves as you possibly can, um, get rid of them, burn them, incinerate them, do them in, burn them to death, <laughs> tie them to the stake, and all of that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and then when in the middle of winter, when the ground is, is free of snow, um, or the end of the winter, make sure that you give your plant a mulch about two inches deep because you're uncovering the soil and if there's any spores left there on the soil they can't get through the mulch to reinfect your tree um pruning it is is i mean these things they get out of, out of hand very very quickly i would actually make sure that you prune away the suckers because i've got a funny feeling in the back of my head somewhere that the suckers will produce plants with the with flowers the same as your uh, mother plant, but they won't be as highly scented because this is one of the attractions of this silver leaf deciduous shrub, Eliagnus angustifolia. It is the swooningly sweet scent that you get. Um, so plant it outside. If you, if, if you haven't planted one before, make sure that somewhere where you can sit by it in the evening or you can catch the waft of it coming through your windows at night. It's absolutely splendid. It's a lovely, lovely thing. Um, yes, cut it as hard back as you want. You can be really brutal with this because it will reshoot again and it will thank you for it. So finally, then, on our very eclectic post bag edition, thank you for all the questions you've sent in. Marie got in touch on Instagram. Uh, Marie is new to growing zinnias and would like some variety recommendations for next year. Oh, what an exciting question. <laughs> well, I, there's um, there's a form of zinnia that I particularly like. Uh, which are excellent for cutting, and they are Benaries, that's B-E-N-A-R-Y apostrophe S, Benaries giant hybrids, and they come in a, an eclectic range of colours, but in separate colours, if you want them that way, or you can buy them in a mixed packet. Um, one thing I would say about growing zinnias um, <coughs> is, I mean, don't just grow the variety. I recommend look through the, the seed catalogues um, and see if there's something else you like, because you can get them with cactus shaped flowers. You can get them doubles. You can get them singles. You can get them tall. You can get them short. You can get them medium sized. But the Benary's giant hybrids are particularly good for the wonderful clarity of richness of their colors. Um, and you combine your own colors. For instance, you can go purple, pink and lime green with a dash of orange if you dare. If you daren't, you're dull. Um, <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, they, they, they are very easy to grow. And one of the easiest flowers to grow from seed because you sow the seed and it germinates within three days and you can see what you're doing. And the other great thing is you can sow them in modules. So you can get little modules, trays of 10 or 12 little modules in a tray and you can sow one or two seeds per station because you, the seeds are big enough to do that with. Um, which means that you don't waste any. Um, and I think the other thing to say about zinnias, and I will implore you, please don't be in too much of a hurry, because zinnias come from Mexico and South America. They detest cold nights. And, you know, quite often in England, it, the summer comes and we say summer starts in June, I suppose. And the nights can still be quite cool. So I would say the end of June, beginning of July is quite time enough to plant them out in the garden and make sure you harden them up before you do. But I would sow my zinnias under glass. Um, I think probably well, almost to the, at the 1st of May, 
if you look at Christopher Lloyd, um, and he sowed his seeds always without artificial heat, which is a great saving. And we've got to think about things like that today with the cost of fuel going up and becoming extraordinarily expensive. If you delay your sowing, yeah, you can get, get your flowers later. But the one great thing today is that often our autumns are much more benign than the springs are. And so you'll get your zinnias going on for a longer period of time. The other thing I would just say about, about zinnias is do plant them in full sun because they love to bask, don't we all? Um, they love to bask and plant them somewhere where they get a little bit of breeze around them because that will help dissipate any fungal spores that happen to get around them. And quite often you will get um, a zinnia will standing straight like that and it suddenly goes like that because somewhere here there's a little bit of fungus got in um, and rotted the stem. That happens. Don't be put off by it, but it shouldn't happen too much. And good luck. I think the amazing thing with zinnias is um, is their lasting power, just how fantastically enduring the bloom is once it's opened. So, um... yeah, if you if you actually if you actually feel the texture of the petals, I mean, you feel the texture of a cosmos petal. It's very fragile, and you you wouldn't want to stroke it. But a zinnia, you can sort of pull and stroke the petals. They're quite tough. They're almost brat like. Um, so, yeah, and they're very good and very long lasting cut flowers. Maybe we should do something on cut flowers one day. Yeah, I think we should. I mean, I, uh, I I just love growing zinnias. I don't have the right kind of greenhouse type underglass scenario, so I always have to start late. And I've, I'm not I've not had huge amounts of success, but I've tried all different ones. Whirly gig, they're just a kind of standard one that turns up in the garden centre seed range, and they're quite fun and colourful. And um, Rita is a cactus one I tried this year, and that's fantastically spiky and apricotty. There's there's one variety that I love, um, but you need to <coughs> you need to grow it carefully. Um, it's a zinnia called red spider, and there's not many places sell it. But Derry Watkins, who with special plants near Bath, she um, sells it by ear, uh, by mail order, and you buy the seed of that, um, and you get spindly little plants. So don't worry about that. But if you buy uh, the seed packet and you grow 10 plants in the seed tray when you take them out plant them cheek by jowl and they will knit together and make one big unit which is a trick of growing them to make them look impressive and they're studded with these starry little bright red zinnia type flowers it's not a big flower it's a flower that says hey i'm over here look at me you'll enjoy me you know the time they're a great compliment i've seen them growing around your um tea room area where people sit outside and they really do yeah, right. meet in well with other plants and I've also seen the lovely Jane Ann Walton who's featured on this podcast uh, she'll just insert one or two into a little bunch of flowers from the garden and they just make the whole thing sing yeah they do they make the garden sing that's another good podcast what are the kind of plants that every garden should have to make it sing I was talking about this to a visitor the other day watch this space so much to come. Um, thank you so much for your questions. We will, of course, have our regular weekly podcasts coming out every Wednesday at seven o'clock. Video version on YouTube, audio version if you want it in your ears while you potter around the garden, etc. Uh, in all of the podcasty places, iTunes, Google, Spotify. Keep sending your questions in. We'll keep talking about plants and spreading the gardening joy. But for the time being, Mr. Gray, go and have a lovely day at East Ruston. Happy gardening. Happy gardening. Bye bye. <laughs> Hey, Thordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back 
for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Mm -hmm.